1: a room upgrade?
0: Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet, finance smarter.
1: Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing Watson X Governance, helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with Watson X Governance. Learn more at IBM.com governance. IBM. Let's create. The sense that, you know, a determination, you've done something wonderful, you did something terrible. I think that that also uh, doesn't quite look soberly at the artistic process, which is that I may not care for this movie you've made, but my understanding is that tomorrow you can make my favorite thing. That is the nature of the search and of this trying again and again. And I think that that is sometimes forgotten in this world of geniuses
0: and idiots. That was Patrick Wang. I'm Sam Fergoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone, and uh, thank you for being here. We only have a few more episodes before the end of the year, and this week uh, I am honored to have on the very talented director, Patrick Wang. Some quick facts about him in case you are unfamiliar uh, with his work. He was born in Texas to Taiwanese immigrants. He graduated from MIT with a degree in economics and music and theater arts. I have to say, in the history of filmmaking, I'm pretty sure, I'm willing to make a bet that he is the only person to have that degree from uh, MIT. He has also authored three books, taught students, and has been an avid student himself of game theory, health policy, and income inequality. I mention this because all of these topics and sub-interests have found their way into Wang's directorial work. In seven years, he's directed four films. While all these movies are different in uh, structure and plot, they seem to be collectively concerned with people that are at once ordinary and flawed. They tell the kind of stories that Hollywood seems less and less interested in telling these days. His characters are often part of fractured marriages, struggling with grief and loss. Currently, he has two movies out in theaters. Um, Yes, in fact, two and the first is called The Grief of Others, and the other is titled A Bread Factory. Here's a bit from the trailer of the latter. If I tell you that after
1: being around for 40 years, your vote will close us, will end The
0: Bread Factory, that doesn't change anything.
1: Why are you here? Because I want to make
0: movies. No. Because I like movies. No. Because movies. Nope! Why are you here? Because my mom's working late? Yeah. My, mom's my mom's and, uh, I don't have mom. Okay, we're not talking about your moms. Not only did I want to have Patrick on because of his work, uh, I think he represents a larger conversation in independent film. He is someone who, um, like I said, has made four movies in seven years, but all of those movies have had a uh, particularly hard time finding an audience. So for the next hour, we get into the difficulties of making the kind of movies that he wants to make in 2018. We talk about growing up in Texas and uh, really so much more. Most importantly, though, if uh, the grief of others and or a bread factory is playing near you, um, it is around the country right now, I would urge you to please go out and support his work in these movies. They are unique and singular and rare. Increasingly so, and um, they deserve your time and attention. So, finally, here is Patrick Wayne. How are we doing? I'm good, how are you? I mean, I'm not putting out three movies at once, so uh, I think I'm probably more sane than you are but (laughs) unclear how's how's your mental uh, health right now
1: uh that's that's probably for others to judge um it's it's kind of business as usual inside here
0: (laughs) and what's business as usual
1: (laughs) it is uh a lot going on and trying to uh you know just trying to find a little place in the world for a kind of conversation a kind of movie a kind of way of looking at people
0: yeah I, I I watched Grief of Others last night, and I had a similar response to what you're saying, which is, oh, that is the type of movie, and it has the, the, the type of conversation that I don't ever see in movies anymore. And uh, I just want to start with this. When you're making this, this film, and, and your latest, all three, although I think it was two, then you divided one into two. Is that weren't for Bread there Factory? Were,
1: for Bread Factory, it was always written as two. Right. But okay. then we shot them both at the same time yeah. and are releasing them both at the same time.
0: Do you have um, any apprehension going into these movies about how they may be uh, responded to?
1: I think I'm pretty realistic about the challenges they'll face once they're done. But I think the place for apprehension is pretty far in the background. I think when you. When you get an idea, when you're playing with some of these uh, characters and thinking about this, these situations they're in, it's mostly just I get excited. There's a lot of love I feel for them. And, and those feelings eclipse everything else. So it's it's definitely not in the foreground when I'm making and thinking about these movies. Mm,
0: I, I don't know if you've, if you've had... I, I've looked through your interviews, and a good bulk of them are often very technical questions about, uh, you know, what was it like to work with actors and or Mm -hmm. what about the blocking of your scenes and how come you don't cut, I'm going to assure you something for the next 45 minutes to an hour, I'm not going to ask you any of those questions. Okay. And I would like to try to chart into some uncharted territory because I don't actually know very much about you outside of the movies you've made. (laughs) So can we start about uh, where you grew up?
1: I grew up in Houston, Texas. Is that okay? Is Houston, Texas okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's like
0: most places people grow up.
1: Um, it, there's a time when it doesn't seem very okay. And then there's a time when you realize, yeah, it was pretty okay.
0: What's uh, the not okay part? Well, it's
1: when, it's when you're a teenager and you're ready to see the world and, and kind of get away from family and the things you've known. Um, in my case, get away from the humidity Hmm. And, uh, yeah, I went to the Northeast, and it is... Yeah, it's just that space you need.
0: Are you uh, a nostalgic person?
1: I think a lot about the past. Hmm. Um, And there's a lot I love about the past, and a lot I learned from it, I guess, if that counts.
0: Yeah, so what do you think about you as, like, a 12, 13-year-old in Houston? (laughs) I try not to. Uh, (laughs) It's... (laughs) (laughs)
1: It's <laughs> a funny answer. I, I don't know. I I I was I was a pretty happy child. I mean every everybody has their their growing pains, but I I had a lot of great friends, my family's pretty great. And I really do now love Texas. Mm-hmm. I, and I love Texans and I think that it's sometimes an undermentioned or underappreciated part of I think my outlook on people. I think that obviously not not all Texans are one thing but I think that there is something about my outlook that is uniquely Texan.
0: What do you think that is?
1: I think that Texans have a... This is going to sound strange to some folks who aren't from Texas, but I think it's a pretty accepting place. You know, Maybe not in certain sectors of politics and, and other things, but the way they see and can live with many different types of... Uh, of people. You know, there's a, there's a whole lot of uh, colors of crazy in Texas. And I think that a sense of humor comes out of that. And a very, uh, you know, it, in, in my first film, Joey, I think of, even though he's from Tennessee, and that there's something very rooted about him. And that rootedness le- leads to um, a strange kind of acceptance and ability to just watch the world.
0: Were people accepting of you?
1: I, uh, the, the ones I hung out with. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> it was, uh, I, I, yeah, I thought so. You know, I, I had many different types of friends, and, and I, I kind of quite loved growing up there.
0: Were you a creative kid?
1: Not in the ways you would think of. You know, I, I wasn't for, it, it was a long time later before I, uh, I found theater and I found film and all these things. So those weren't part of my uh, childhood growing up. Uh, I played a little music, but nothing beyond sort of like standards and piano lessons and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, so not really, but, you know, I was helping my mother clean out the house over the summer. And I found a lot of my old schoolwork. And so there, every, every so often something would bubble up, you know. I found the fifth grade. I think it was the first play I wrote. Uh, and so... What was uh, it about? It was a comedy about terrorism. At a museum, yeah. <laughs> Light. <laughs> it was, and what was very funny is, I, I didn't realize this until, again, I, I revisited it, but it was, uh, it was such a hit in the fifth grade in Houston, Texas, that uh, they demanded a sequel, and so I wrote a sequel.
0: Was that not as good? I, I, I think that's fair to say. <laughs> <laughs> so you're writing comedies about terrorism. That's the kind of, I'm trying to get a, a shape- in the sense of who you are going into being a teenager. Were you fairly comfortable with yourself?
1: I think relative to where teenagers usually are, yes.
0: Which is almost uh, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I, I don't think I was a particularly unusually uncomfortable teenager. Yeah.
0: What happens for you after high school?
1: After high school, well, I should probably mention one thing that was pretty formative in high school, which is that I was a, an exchange student to Argentina. And, you know, you talk about leaving home. Uh, that was very eye-opening for me. What age is that? I was 15. And uh, and I was in Argentina, not not even in the big city. You know, I was in, in the... Not exactly the countryside, but, you know, out in the country. Sort of, strangely enough, the Texas of Argentina, in mm. Corrientes. And it was just a, such a different way of being. Such very different... You know, I had... Uh, a brother my own age, suddenly. Um, so many things were different. My mother there was an artist. Uh, she was did all sorts of things, you know. She was a sculptor, a painter. She wrote plays, directed them. She was a historian, she was a local politician. Wow. Um, yeah, so it was kind of this burst. And art was always in her home, you know. She would have poets come and musicians come through. And it was her view that just, it was part of everyone's life and I think that that hit me for a moment, but like most things when you're in another place, it can stay compartmentalized for a while and then it starts to bleed into your life. Mm. Um, And uh, I've stayed in touch with them uh, since then and uh, they're a very big part of my life. It's a very big family and I love them very much.
0: When you're 15 and you're in Argentina and all this newness is, is, is coming into your life, is there ever a moment where you think, oh, maybe I could write or direct or do any of that? No. <laughs> you're just
1: you're just amazed. It's a little more immediate in that I was smoking for the first time. They, they teach you, I mean, at that time, all the kids smoked. Mm. And they tell you not to do things that essentially set you apart uh, if you're really trying to go and learn how to be part of the culture. I remember some vegetarians had to give that up, mm. being there, because it's just central to the culture, and if you... Cling to it; it sets you apart for you know the time there where you're supposed to really be trying to understand what it is to immerse yourself in that world. So I was I was smoking. We were it was in the winter, and we didn't have always have heating in the schools, and so we were drinking whiskey to keep warm. And so uh, this, art was this not probably high. Fifteen. On
0: that. This is a great fifteen. It is.
1: It was a departure, and it was uh, it was very exciting.
0: Did your parents know what you were doing? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that sounds like 15 too.
0: <laughs> yeah. So when you go back home, how do you settle back into America?
1: It's very difficult. I think linguistically it was just very difficult because I had uh you know, I had made the transition to thinking in Spanish and in my house we spoke uh we spoke English but also uh Chinese and Taiwanese. Hmm. And I was getting the circuits all confused for uh I couldn't control which language i was speaking i would go back and forth between them in a way i, I was completely out of control linguistically so that was <laughs> that enough just speaking <laughs> was very hard but you know we're human beings we get used to life anywhere mm-hmm. circumstances anywhere and so soon back to back to high school in texas
0: were your parents restrictive at all
1: they were you know protective and yeah in that protection, they, they put up restrictions and, you know, at the time you, you are upset about them, you rebel against them, but, you know, looking back, I don't think it's anything unusual.
0: Right. Yeah. Not like, uh, some of the dynamics in your movies, which I think there seems to be a recurring theme of, of tragedy, uh, uh, familial tragedy. And I, and I guess I thought, well, maybe that that's, that's something that you're drawing from at, at being that age. Because at that age, we're so impressionable. and, and Things that happen really can stick. Yeah. You know, the, the only thing I can identify, I don't spend a lot of
1: time, this is the most time I've spent thinking about my early years and, and, and what this might mean for film. Great. Yeah. Um, so it's uncharted territory for us both. Um, <laughs> but I think the only thing I really know I drew on is just the importance of a kitchen. Kind of kitchens and kitchen tables are where I remember all the traffic intersecting for the family. Yeah. So I think like that's definitely something I, I see in the movies and something that just comes from what I'm used to. And, and especially that back door in the kitchen area is uh, all my, yeah, all my films have that. Um, I know it's not in every kitchen, but for me, it's just very much an important part of the geography of a home.
0: Yeah. Seems like a good uh, escape route, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and the, and the kitchen is uh, a heavily trafficked area.
1: Yeah, and then in, you know, it, it's a place that changes. The mood changes in the kitchen, and people, even if there's not a lot of communication, you uh, yeah, you have to. The traffic intersects there,
0: unfortunately. Yeah, or fortunately,
1: or you fortunately. know it. Um, If you you had your way, you would see no one, but, you know, everybody has got to eat. (laughs) um, I remember there was, uh, people have different perspectives on it. When I'm in France, they were looking at uh, the grief of others. And their comment was, why doesn't this family ever cook? Why don't they have a hot meal? They would be much happier if they had a hot
0: meal. That would solve all of their problems. (laughs) All the children problems. It would have been fine if they just cooked a nice dish. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I mean there there is some truth to that because cooking together is a kind of ritual. Yeah. Um and some kind of intersection. So yeah, it's uh it was not a, it was a entertaining comment but there is probably a, a grain of truth to it.
0: Well, speaking of a time where I didn't know cooking, that's college. <laughs> and uh, I have to imagine you didn't know cooking in college either, but you went to Didn't you go to a few different schools? I went to MIT. You went to MIT? Yeah. Which is uh, I've heard a really easy school to get into and not very challenging and all that stuff.
1: It's um it's like anything you get to, you realize that, you know, it has its share of the not too bright. So you uh you get over the sense that you're you're just pure elitist there. Um It was interesting. I, I think the thing I really loved about MIT is it's a pretty open campus. Mm. You know, it uh it spills into Boston and Cambridge. And MIT students are known for going off campus and doing more things than um, some of our colleagues down
0: the river. Anyone in particular? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, at
1: a, at the time I was thinking, you know, I love Boston as a city. I think it's good for exploring when you're in college. And I was looking at Harvard and MIT and I eventually chose MIT really just for its openness.
0: Mm-hmm. 18-year-old you going off to MIT. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're moving cross country, essentially, from Houston to Massachusetts. It's a trek, yeah. Are you anxious at all? Yeah.
1: It's something new starting. It's, uh, it's an exciting new city, and you're but on your own.
0: You get to be away from family.
1: Yeah, you get to you have a little space to find yourself.
0: What was the game plan then?
1: The game plan was I started as a, I thought it was physics. Like I'm, I'm here to be a physics major. And that didn't last very long. (laughs) Um, I I, I guess I had uh, a folk understanding of physics. (laughs) And uh, the kind of sophistication that uh, was required for, maybe not even just the sophistication, the passion that was required to want to answer some of these questions in physics uh, was not something I had.
0: Uh, How quickly did you realize that?
1: Probably after my first semester. Mm. It didn't take too long. And, and it was also, I had a very naive understanding of physics in that I almost thought of it a little religiously and I didn't realize what a mess it was uh, and how approximate it was and the question and the things that didn't know. Mm. Um, like when you're young, you like answers, you like solid ground. And it wasn't that. And, you know, there's a part of me that thought, well, if it's going to be this messy anyway, I might as well study economics. Mm. And there's, Interestingly, uh, a path at MIT where a lot of physicists become economists. I think they intersect a lot in the math uh, requirements that they have. Um, as economics has become quite a technical uh, field, and uh, but for me, I, I was most what I was very excited about is I thought you know physics was about our lives, and then economics, in a different way, is about our lives and how we make decisions, and I quite like that.
0: Mm. Do you have any trepidation switching majors after coming all this way to go to a prestigious school?
1: Uh, I Not really. Um, You're
0: pretty quick on pivoting if you needed to. I think
1: so. And I think that that's also a reason. I, you know Another school I had looked at was Caltech. And I think one of the reasons I didn't go there is I thought MIT would afford me, if I changed my mind, Mm. it would afford me some more options. And, uh, yeah, and I mean, Caltech has, not to not to discount tech, it has plenty of options, too. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, that's that ended up being what happened.
0: Did you find any of that spontaneity and joy that you found in Argentina and MIT?
1: I did, and I, I found it in, so when I was a student, I started going to the theater, and I started going to Fringe Theater, mm. um, you know, very small uh, theater companies. And, and one of the, it was a time where if you could type, you were a computer whiz. And they had such a need for me typing, you know, I could manage the database and type in their mailing list. And so I became a volunteer at one of these theater companies. And uh, Just because you could type? Just because I could type and, uh, and open and close and save a database. And uh, times have changed. <laughs> and it was great because uh, that threshold of when you're allowed to be part of something, you know, what you can step into, I think that there with that theater company and then with other theater companies I found, they needed help. Right. And if there was a barrier war, to entry, it was pretty low. And I think that that's quite important for a young person in art. Mm. Um it's a lot of what my my new film is about, A Bread Factory, kind of a community art space where, yeah, the barrier entry is low. And it's not that it's, it's just low. It's expected that art can play a role in your life, a non-professional role, but a vital human mm. uh, and social role.
0: Right. I think something I've seen in your movies and I've heard you speak about extensively is that you seem to have some pretty easily definable principles about art and the power that it holds and what it can be and uh, what it is often not. And uh, I have this quote here. I can't wait to hear what these are. Well, well here's, here's a quote from you. Um, I think contemporary dramatic writing tends to reduce characters to political objects and rely too much on dark and extreme events. The effect is to push out the innocence that is part of every human life, the neutral space where we try to take in what is happening and where we make our decisions. You think of someone like Ibsen, who Arthur Miller described as a grab-you-by-the-lapels to scream, now hear this kind of writer. And even he succeeded in creating these neutral spaces for his characters. It's arguably where the power of his drama lies.
1: I'd agree with that.
0: This is a quote from you yes <laughs> um, I think you I think that is defining a little bit of where you're approaching or how you're approaching your storytelling.
1: I think that's right.
0: Does that start or does that does that sort of larger thesis begin at your time in Fringe theater?
1: I think it's just how I see people and I think what theater taught me was, uh, shapes of dramatic writing. And, you know, you learn the grades and you learn uh, these shapes, these basic building blocks of drama. But I think that combined with just how I see people is what produces a statement like that. And what I think is interesting about people um, and what is the source of my love and fascination with people. So it's uh yeah, you can, you can tie it to theater, but I think it's just how I see folks.
0: Well, this may seem like a a dumb question or an obvious one, but how do you see people?
1: I one, I think they're very funny. Uh, I think that you know i I think a lot. I, people who know me know that I talk a lot about Fred Rogers, and I I just thought he was extraordinary. I was the part of that generation that grew up watching him, and you think about what he sees as dramatic, you know, he see, he understands that for a child, a haircut is dramatic. Mm. He sees for a child, what it means when, you know, the type of play they engage in, if they're engaged in a world of where someone else makes the rules, um, in something like a video game or whether the world, they can create the world to conform to their needs. Um, I wonder then how, uh, you know, he had this. It was this wonderful presence taking care of you as a child, and I think of how he might have seen adults. Mm. You know, and and who sees us that way for the dramas that some other people might miss, and I think that 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 struggle. Um, he talked about it as, you know, there's a point when you're a kid when you just say to adults, you know, because there's that assumption that. People just know you can. People can know you completely. Mm. You can say to your parents, you know, and they know, right? Because you're accessible completely. And then, as you become an adult, there's parts of you that you come to understand. No one will know unless you tell them. And some things you don't think you'll ever tell anyone. Mm. And I think that that kind of burden is how I how I see people. The things they feel they cannot say, uh, the parts of themselves that. They feel um, may remain unknowable, and and just the you know the range of burdens they carry. You know, some are very tragic and big, and then some are very daily. And how they mix, mm. and those special occasions when we can let go of some of those burdens.
0: I was thinking, are they better off unknowable? I I think they can
1: be as long as they're not weighing. You know, they're not weighing you down, that they're not uh, cutting off a piece of you that can attend to other people. But unfortunately, that's usually the sh- what happens is that, uh, and this is the shape of the grief of others, which is we think we're sparing people by not burdening them with our pains, but actually sharing our pains is a part of how we build the bo- our bonds with others. Mm. Yeah, so I think those opportunities to see each other and to share these parts of ourselves with each other are beautiful opportunities. It's not, your question is, uh, is is a right one. It's not always the case that this is a wonderful, virtuous thing. But I think that in, in the situations of my films, I think that they are breakthroughs.
0: Have you found that in your films that they have helped you work through whatever issues you were dealing with? I think,
1: yes, they, they definitely helped me I mean, I definitely learn a lot from them. And there's things on my mind that it helps to clarify. I don't know that they're clean answers. You know, for my latest film, it was a, it's called A Bread Factory. And it was a lot of what was on my mind was art and commerce. And, uh, you know, the films don't lead us to a beautiful solution for our times to this very old question. But they help me understand it a little better and make some kind of peace. Mm. With that understanding, yeah.
0: Well, on on that, I'd like to hear about your piece because it seems that since In the Family came out, I think that was 2011, Mm -hmm. there has been a recurring narrative about you uh, as a filmmaker who's truly actively battling the the, the larger forces that be in Hollywood in terms of being a true self-distributor and putting your movies out there Almost, it seems, by pure will. And uh, I want to get into, uh, starting with Into Family, mm-hmm. where does that come from for you, this, this idea that you need to put them out on your own?
1: I, I think it's pretty simple. It's, uh, you, you love this thing and you want it to exist, and the normal avenues by which these things come into existence and come into consciousness don't pan out. Uh, for your film, for one reason or another, and you just do what you can. You do with what you understand. You're left you know, the devices you have left to you, the options you have left to you, and you reevaluate kind of every step of the way within the family. You know, again, yeah, as a first time distributing something, and you make errors. And the nice thing is, with a distributor, if an error is made along the way, it might be the end of the process mm. but if you still care and you still want to move forward you make errors and then
0: you keep going mm-hmm. um, it's a film that also a lot has been written on the fact that it was rejected 30 times for 30 from 30 festivals or something like that
1: that, that was at a point in time yeah and after that point in time the rejections continued and so i, I I think we tallied it for a fact check at one point for when that article came out, and I have no interest in tallying <laughs> what the numbers become afterwards.
0: How was how your spirit in that, at that point when you're getting those letters of rejection?
1: Uh, I think it's something familiar to most filmmakers is it's very hard because, you know, you make something for a very essential human reason is that you want to have things in common with other human beings. Yeah. And it's just the thing that makes you feel you have... Less in common, and you have less opportunity to find things in common with other people.
0: I, I am uh, I'm learning about this. I I have my made condolences. My fir- yeah, well, it's really I made my first short in February, and I've have sent it out and received. I actually don't think I've admitted this on the show, but I've received <laughs> uh, unequivocal, uniform rejections from places, and uh, it's a tough thing. For the for the very reason, you said, which is because you made it for a very human reason, and uh, you you hope that it connects with mm-hmm. someone on the other side, and then it's very frustrating for another reason, which is nothing to do with humanity and more with competition, mm-hmm. which is you look at what is accepted then, and then you wonder, wow, I mean that is, it has to be worse than what I did. Mm-hmm. And, and then I, it's hard to, to balance all of that and still wake up in the morning and want to do it again.
1: Yeah. Um, Schadenfreude gets you through. <laughs> it's uh, There is, you know, you just remember the many, some of my favorite, especially writers, you know, were
0: never published in their lifetime. and Yeah, but I mean, who wants that, really? Jeez, yeah. uh, I mean, I, you hear that and it's like, yeah, they it's were ver- never celebrated in their lifetime. It's like, great. <laughs> I have to live a whole life in pain and then you know not me of course I'm talking about the yeah and, and it go. is
1: and, and but you just understand it as an old pattern and I think that sometimes it's crummy luck and then sometimes it's just people cannot see and I one of my favorite writers who wasn't published in his lifetime had a very funny way of putting it so kind of tongue in cheek he would say you know uh, I'm at odds with the present but eternity loves me <laughs>
0: Is that how you feel?
1: <laughs> it is. why I definitely feel the first part of that. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's also, I had a friend who was running for office and uh, she was very frustrated, you know, with a lot of elements of the process, including the people who she felt should be on her side. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I reminded her of something that I try to remind myself of at times is that um, that's why we need you. That's why this process needs you is that, you know, we don't need a lot of things that fit into the machine. Uh, We need something a little different. And I think that, you know, if that is what you care about, is that difference is just making a space for some, some of the things that I love that I don't see echoed in, in film conversation and film making. And uh, you, yeah, you just try to carve out that space and you understand that because of its difference, it, uh, it will be uphill, but that's sort of why it needs you.
0: So did people say to you in the family does not programmatically fit into any space that we need right now? It's not working for us.
1: It's anything from that to pretty condescending feedback. I think I'll, some of it is understandable. I, I think people choose a narrative without quite evaluating how the facts fit into it. Right. And so the narrative is, oh, it's a first film. There's all these mistakes made. And so they, yeah, you get, you essentially the feedback I frequently get is a laundry list of all the differences that are seen without any real... Um, What's the
0: condescension?
1: The condescension is, is assuming all the differences are errors and that, uh, and that that's obvious upon a first cursory kind of, Viewing of something. Mm-hmm. I think that you, you may be familiar with this process that a lot of filmmakers will screen their films for, yeah. uh, uh, you know, they'll do a rough cut screening for their colleagues and, and some other people. And I go to those to support the filmmakers during what is a very vulnerable process.
0: L- probably the most vulnerable.
1: Yeah. And, and what's, what's heartbreaking is filmmakers should know this, producers should know this. And yet they are the most vicious in that process. And I think that one, unless you're making the most simplistic film, I can't know, I can't tell you what to do with this, right? Because a single viewing, I can't understand the structural issues immediately. And I don't understand the catalog of what's available to you. right? And so just from a practical standpoint, again, unless it's the most simplistic thing, I can't get my head around it in a single viewing. And what confidence people will have to just tell people everything that's wrong, what they need to do to change it. And I think that's also very insulting to, again, for people who should know better what the artistic process is. You need to, Mm -hmm. it's the filmmaker's job to find these things.
0: The worst note is sort of like, and, but what if this happened? And it's like, well, we don't have that footage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I know that would be great. I agree, it would be great. Mm-hmm. But I, that's, the, that's the biggest problem with giving notes is that I think you don't know what they shot. You don't know the B-roll that they have. Yeah. You don't know the scenes they had to nix. So you end up giving notes that are, I find, uh, some. But then, but then on the other end, at least in, 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 for me, but I'm sure even, uh, even more so for you, I have received notes that were deeply helpful and that were very considerate and uh, were not stepping on toes and we're not bullish and they were presented with the type of understanding and mm-hmm. vulnerability that was required. And those, I think, can be helpful. But you have to know that the person giving you notes is doing so Because they have their, they have your best interests at heart.
1: Mm -hmm. And I, it is wonderful. I'm, I'm very happy to hear that you've had that experience too. You have not. I, uh, I don't have that often, but I also very quickly, I think within the family, because I didn't know any better. I, you know, I did show it to people and they gave me feedback, but since then I just, I think it's my job. To You know, there's the, the saying that, oh, you need, you need fresh eyes and you need someone with distance. I think it's the same way an actor's job is to keep things spontaneous. Um, it's the director's job to keep a kind of freshness to the questions they ask mm. and to burrow into these ideas and figure out what needs to be done. And I don't, I don't let anyone take that away from me. And I don't like to take it away from other people. And I think that that part of the process, I think, also aligns with what you're talking about a little about feedback, this sense that, you know, a determination, you've done something wonderful, you did something terrible. I think that that also uh, doesn't quite look soberly at the artistic process, which is that I may not care for this movie you've made, but my understanding is that tomorrow you can make my favorite thing. Mm-hmm. That is the nature of the search and of this trying again and again. And I think that that is sometimes forgotten in this world of geniuses and idiots. <laughs> you know, it's... Uh,
0: yeah, it seems like we've really have two clear distinctions, geniuses and idiots. But I think most people are neither.
1: I think that's pretty fair.
0: how did you manage to keep this desire to explore in the face of mass rejection it's a good
1: question Um, it's a question that I think a lot of people even from this is a lot of what the new movie is about people from the outside who look like the straight arrow you know they're going to do their own thing they've done it for 40 years they actually question it every day they question the, the usefulness of what they do and they question whether they wanna keep doing it. And my producer says a piece of that is amnesia. It's like birth amnesia. It's mm. like you forget how hard it is and you forget the, the harder parts of it, uh, the parts that hurt. And you know, the other part is that there are, like you were saying with the comments, there are the beautiful things that, that can lift you up in the process and mostly for me, it's just I just fall in love with a new idea or I fall in love with, uh, or I'm in love, for example, I finished a film, I'm in love with it. I want, I want it to exist. I want people to see it. I want to talk to people. Hmm. And so uh, that will just overwhelm every other feeling.
0: How important was uh, Roger Ebert's review of that movie?
1: It was very important in that uh, it definitely got a lot more people to pay attention. It got people to come to the theaters when we were playing. I think that maybe more important than that is I I never got to meet him face to face, but we, you know, we exchanged some messages back and forth. And I think the thing I loved and I learned most from Roger was he didn't want to talk about my movie. He didn't want to talk about himself. He started just talking about, oh, this other writer I love. And I think that I like that a lot. That's sort of what I've, has been a very sobering part of, uh, a memory of, of Roger then, something that I think about when I, I start to take my work and other work a little too seriously.
0: Mm. is yeah. to think about other people. Well, yeah, yeah.
1: This, this joy in, in others and that if you care about, you know, a state of art, it's outside of yourself and that you have to exercise this love for other other people's work
0: how did your uh how did your family feel about in the family
1: my father who was a big part of why i made the film um he passed away before he got to see it but he uh he knew about the making of it and it was really wonderful to get to talk to him about it and yeah my mother went through a process where at the beginning you know it's uh you're putting a lot out there and she was, like a lot of private people, a little worried about that. But uh, in the end, she was very proud of it. And I was very happy to be able to share it with her.
0: You're putting a lot out there as in you're telling people, strangers, too much about our lives? or
1: I don't know that so much about your own life, but that you're talking about certain elements of people. And, you know, you're going to the depths of how you see people in situations and some things that people may be uncomfortable with. And uh, in some ways, things that don't align with quite anything. And uh, yeah, and then also just, um, you know, you end up doing a lot of interviews and you talk about growing up in Texas and you answer people's questions about your parents. (laughs) And uh, you know, that that takes some getting used to for anyone. (laughs) <laughs>
0: Does it make you uncomfortable? It's
1: It doesn't. Um, maybe it should. I, I think that one, one of the things I learned very early on is that I never listen to any of my interviews or read any of my interviews. Because Great. I most likely would never do another interview if I did. Okay. Um, I'll
0: make sure not to send this to you.
1: <laughs> but I, uh, I I used to, when I remember my very first and I was very worried about it. Because it um, it seemed like some sort of test, mm. you know, in terms of questions and answers and what you were opining on, what you were pontif- pontificating on, and I think since then I I stopped doing that and I just focus on whoever I am talking to, and if you focus on where the question is coming from, I, I don't think it ever it's it's never been uncomfortable for me.
0: Mm. Yeah, those are uh, Q and A's are are difficult. It can be difficult. I love them. You love them?
1: I really love them.
0: When they go well? When they go
1: well, and then when they don't, it's a... Uh, a curious uh, disaster. I, you know, I really can't think of when they don't. I mean, there, there's elements that are awkward at points, but then that's the challenge. Right. You know, there's people there, and there's something to talk about. And so maybe you don't start off on the right foot, but there's a whole well of potential there. And I think that that has always served my Q&A as well. And I, we always end up in a wonderful place.
0: Do you see yourself uh, in terms of the larger independent filmmaking landscape? Do you see yourself as someone who is constantly fighting uphill?
1: I think that there are many, you know, in the process of what I do, there are fewer forces aligned with you than you would hope for. Every time you do it, the configuration of who is a friendly force and uh, who is an absent force Mm -hmm. is always new and surprising to both sides, to the upside and to disappointment.
0: Uh, Have a lot of distributors disappointed you?
1: I've I've been disappointed that I don't have a distributor in the US, I think that is disappointing. It's hard to sort of find two fierce words for, I mean, it's almost like lecturing a trauma victim. It's, uh, they have a lot they're dealing with, a lot of fears that they're, uh, and existential fears that they're dealing with. I think that what is the real regret I have is that I believe that there is a very broad space for my films. I think humans many different types of humans um, can find something in them Mm -hmm. i think the problem is that the paths are not there for them to find the films and to find these opportunities and to exercise
0: what do you mean by that uh just you know
1: for sometimes it's very literal you know i'll be at the movie theater there's people coming uh they're just going into the other theaters And that basic connection of people knowing about the opportunity to see it and then going to see it is a very fundamental thing. But then the other thing is a little broader, which is just this idea of... I'll give you a very specific example uh, that I heard a lot with the first film, and I hear with The Grief of Others too, is that people look at something that is tragic or something that is dramatically um, difficult and they think... That it's going to hurt them in some way, right? how often have you heard like i i, I just can't uh, deal with that right now, mm-hmm. or whereas you know I've said it myself yeah and 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 it's in some ways it's because of how we've been betrayed by certain dramatists that they they trot trot out heaviness and they trot out pain, violence, all these things with no compensation for having done so, and so it becomes just this uh, gratuitous uh, uh, parade of these things. Whereas, you know, you think back to older dramatic origins, it's these things were put in front of us to help us understand our lives, help us deal with it, that they can be a help. Mm. Uh, They can be a very productive thing, and that we should want to go to these things to help us through some of these heavier things and that they're also interspersed with like uh i think that this is this happens in a lot of drama that it's heavy 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 awful 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 and i think that it's you know you go to a film it's it is called the grief of others but there's comic moments in it there's more neutral moments there's there's all
0: sorts of things it's funny it's funny there's some funny moments yeah <laughs> i was more uh in pain than laughing but yeah you know, it was like a 60 40 split yeah <laughs> That's not bad. It's not bad. Hey, that's, most movies are uh, tipped way uh, in the other direction.
1: Yeah, and it was fun to, you know, for the new projects that are much heavier on the comedy, that was a lot of fun mm. uh, to 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 tip it in the other direction.
0: What are the kind of conversations you're having when you are pitching the movie to distributors? I think this is probably something folks are interested in hearing about cuz it's you ha- you have a pretty uh unique experience with them
1: I I don't know that I have particularly interesting conversations with distributors I think they are the kind of business conversations that aren't too different from what you have with uh you know what you have with festivals if you have one it's you know it's a pretty generic sounding one mm mm-hmm. Um, Do they give feedback I maybe sometimes i don't listen, so I maybe I've missed some. I think that generally what you know i can I can tell you the general shape of it is that you know the films are too small, um usually in profile uh, or in name of cast um, and i but I think the the real difficulty is it's not this year's version of last year's thing it's hard to pin down mm and that's a
0: really good sentence yeah this year's version of last year's thing
1: yeah there's no again it's that idea of a path and a very narrow path right yeah that's that statement is regarding a very narrow path and i think no one's taking care of the broader paths of just general discovery and openness to newer things and i think that yeah, that's uh,
0: that's pretty much every conversation. Is casting something you're thinking about when, you, when you're writing and about to make these movies? Are you, are you trying to get a bigger, more uh, broadly appealing cast? I don't think so.
1: I love actors of all backgrounds and types. And so I like that as I make more movies, there's more actors that I really would like to work with, that will listen and, and say yes. Mm-hmm. I think that's wonderful. But I think that there's sort of a, a level at which that really means something, and that's a level that I don't traffic in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think I can, uh, so I... Why do you think that is? I don't know. It's, it's any time you get into systems of power and politics. I don't like to spend a lot of time swimming in that.
0: Mm. There's a purity. To your movies, and really to you, from what I've got in like the last fifty minutes here, is that I I admire the sort of like artistic nobility of of it all. I think you are a rarity, and that's and that is also how I think you are frequently described in sort of the critic circles. From what I remember reading,
1: I think pretty when you know when I was much younger. I, like many people, loved complexity. You know, I loved how clever I could be, and I loved all these these really complex forms of things. And I think as I've become a little more honest, I just realized that I can only understand. And this happens, you know, in the technical tools we're not talking about. There is a simplicity I try to approach with just because I... I feel like that's the only way I can understand and get a hold on things. Hmm. And it's the same thing with, uh, you know, with these movies making their way into the world or what I care about when I look, you know, in pursuing something within a movie, there's, I try to simplify it. Um, I try not to be too complicated about, uh, too fancy about what I'm doing Mm -hmm. and honest with what I see and what I'm thinking. And, I think it leads to this uh this state that you're talking
0: about. Well, I'm 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 drawn back to Roger's writing in a lot of ways because it, that's the quality that I think about most frequently now. Mm-hmm. Which is you read it and it's like, wow. He is explaining not only the movie, but his opinion on the movie in a way that is so it's not simplistic. Mm-hmm. Because simplistic sounds like almost a little reductive, but it it, it it's it's so, clear. It's so clear. Yeah. It's so economical. Mm. Hmm. Uh, and and you're not lost, but you also feel like it's like an elevated thought in some way. It comes. It feels informed and considered. And it's uh it's it's odd because there's two different approaches, right? Because you read Pauline Kael, mm-hmm. and the rhetoric is is obviously. More highfalutin and, mm-hmm. and and fancier and uh, loud in its syntax, but is is also r- riveting in mm-hmm. a lot of different ways. Two, the two can coexist, and in fact, they did. And I think that's true in filmmaking. Mm-hmm. But you are very much on, in my head, the Roger side of it.
1: Yeah, and I, I think you are right that that all these things can and should. All exist. Uh, and yeah, but I do find that a lot of the writers, you know, not just in critics, but, you know, in poetry, in prose, they understand the power in how few moves they take to express something. And it just, uh, everything is that much more meaningful when you have that clarity
0: mm. uh, at the center. Something that gave me clarity last night in in reading about you. You have this quote, "Things that are different will have a hard time." That's the history of art. It's also the present of art for a lot of artists. Are you talking about yourself there?
1: Uh that that seems to fit. Uh <laughs> Yeah. You know, you again this this talking about not being too highfalutin. I don't like to talk about being an artist too much. I think that in the end, you know, the art falls away and it's all just questions about who we are and how we see ourselves. And I think the more complicated, honest questions about how we see ourselves are hard ones. Mm -hmm. Um, And that people don't just uh, rush
0: to embrace. Well, you have three movies all coming out at once, essentially. Do you think down the line and in, in your future that this job, which is what it is for you, will, will get easier?
1: I think the first part of the answer to that is just that I don't know. Every film I've made, I always make as if it's the last one. And I usually don't know anything in the future beyond that. So in, as far as I know, it is the last one. Um, that's a wonderful way, I found it's a wonderful way for me to make films. Mm. Uh, Each one counts and you kind of put it all into it. And so, you know, there's a part of you that obviously you love it and you would love to do it again and you have other ideas. You know, and there's days that that's where, that's the side of the ledger you're on where you're just like, come on, give me something to work with. Right. Um, uh, Make it a little easier this time. Uh, But, The other side of it is you remember, well, you know, you didn't come into this world. The world doesn't owe you a certain number of movies. And I think that I've gotten away with four. I've gotten away with four that I have no regrets about. Mm. Uh, That's pretty damn good. And so, yeah, you kind of waffle between those two ideas and depending on the day of the week. And
0: how about today? (laughs) Today I'm
1: feeling pretty good. I'm getting to have a... A long conversation about some of these things with someone who's interested and like we talked about it's like this engagement is uh is all you can hope for and so it's reminding me of 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 the good stuff
0: well it's my hope that uh you come back on the show with another movie but also you know you can come on without another movie too (laughs) um patrick wang thank you so much
1: thank you sam it's a pleasure (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Special thanks this week to Sasha Behrman for arranging today's episode. I also want to thank Patrick Wang for coming over to the house and uh, for giving me some of his time in L.A. A couple times in the interview, um, Patrick and I discussed this movie called In the Family. It is uh, his directorial debut that I first saw at Ebert Fest when I first met Patrick. It is still to date my favorite of his films and by chance... It is available online for free for anyone who is an Amazon Prime member. If you want to learn more about his latest movie called A Bread Factory, you can do so at their website. It's www.abreadfactory.com. They are also looking for theaters around the country to host screenings of this movie. And uh, if you, by chance, are someone who books arthouse programming uh, around the country or you know someone that does, or you just want to write to your art houses to say, Hey, this is a movie I'd like to see. You can also find info on the website there, and you can email them at infobreadfactory.com. At to listen to more episodes we've done with directors this year, you can find all of them at www.talkeasypod.com. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. As always, the show is executive produced by David Chen. Graphics by Ian Jones. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our associate producer is Elliot Weintraub. And the show is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm Sam Fracoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week.
1: The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at T-Mobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.